Listen to how Jesus prayed to the Father for his followers, including us, according to John 17, beginning in verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of joy, or measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me to the world, I have sent them into the world. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us. God, that you have chosen to put your spirit into earthen vessels. God, that we are no longer part of this world, Lord God, but we are in this world as light. Lord, the light of life, Lord God, the spirit of life that raised Christ from the dead is now residing in us, Lord God. And I thank you that you've chosen us to be the ones to carry that out into the world, to bring people to know you. God, I pray that today as the word is delivered, our hearts and our ears and our minds will be open to hear the truth of what you have to say, Lord God. As the scripture has just said, your word is truth. And God, I would pray that that word would be planted deep in our hearts, Lord God. It would take root in our souls. That would bring forth fruit, Lord God, that we would reach the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Hey, would you find First Peter in a Bible? And good morning to all of you, including those watching on live stream. I'm getting the signal that I'm not, not on, Jason, so. Okay. Oh. Okay, can you all hear me now? Bob, can you hear me? Okay, good. Because this is for you, Bob. The whole, the whole sermon is just, no. It's, here's the deal, friends. I'm talking to myself. If you want to eavesdrop, feel free. And I, I kind of mean that. First Peter is where we're taking some time and... Um, Here's where we've been talking about, you know, we're not, there we go, yeah. We've been talking about facing different realities around us, the hard things, also the good things, and it's important to do that honestly, and yet it's also all the more important that we focus, we place our focus not on those realities, but on the reality. Put our focus on the reality, which is God, giving himself in his son Jesus by his spirit, And the kind of question we want to raise today is about those realities is where are we? And particularly along with home and job and neighborhood and so on. But the reality that uh, we live in the United States of America in this nation. And I imagine most of us are citizens. We're at least residents here. And what does it mean that we would be in this realm called the United States? And as Jesus said, to the Father, I, I pray not, Father, that you, you take them out of wherever they are, but rather I send them in. So here we are in the United States. What does it mean that we reside here as citizens, but we do so not of this realm, but of Christ and sent by him and belonging to the Father uh, through him? What does that mean to be a Christ follower, and a citizen. I wonder if any of you know that it's an election year. Anybody? <laughs> You've heard a tiny bit about it, right? And, and what are we, nine days away now from the election? And I voted, maybe you have too, but uh, quite, a, quite a year we're having. Um, I wonder how many of you are in family relationships 
Here's the ballot, not, not filled out, by the way. So. But I wonder uh, how many of you are in families where if you want to have a degree of peace, one topic you avoid at all costs is politics. Anybody there? Um, my family, we're, we're there. And, um, well, we're a family. We're a family. I really like peace. And yet, the passage we're going to look at today pulls us into thinking about what it means to be citizens and, and to have the freedom to vote and so on. What does it mean to be citizens of this, uh, of this nation? We get some help from this letter from the Apostle Peter to several groups of Christ followers. And let's, let's go to the very beginning and take a look at how he begins this letter. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exile scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, where are these people? Just get a little background here. These people are part of the Roman Empire. They're in the uh, somewhat eastern provinces in what we now call Turkey. And it's interesting that Peter calls them exiles. He calls them exiles. Now, some of them perhaps literally were exiles. Uh, They're living in one of those regions uh, where they were not born, perhaps, where they don't fit in, where they're not welcome, uh, they don't fully belong, they're not citizens of the Roman Empire. Almost certainly that was the case for perhaps most or all of them. Peter himself, he's kind of an outsider. He's come from the region of Galilee in Israel, and to be from Galilee is to be automatically an outsider, Uh, That part of Israel was especially occupied by the Romans at that time. And and so they, of course, looked down with their power on any Jews. But then even within Israel, if you're from Galilee, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem, you're kind of an outsider. You're looked down upon. Uh, You've got a weird accent. So people in Jerusalem, the kind of Jewish religious establishment and elite, uh, they look at anyone from Galilee as a kind of outsider. And uh, he says that now he's in Babylon. Well, where's Babylon? Well, that's the, the capital of the ancient empire where the Jews spent 70 years in literal exile. And yet, almost certainly, this name Babylon is not the ancient city of Babylon to the far east, but rather a code word for Rome. Another, from the posture of the Jews, evil empire. Well, let me tell you what Peter mainly means when he calls these Christ followers exiles. It goes back to their identity. They belong to God. They're the elect. They're chosen. Um, They're exiles because they have been, as Peter goes on to say, they've been born anew into a living hope. They have a whole new identity as God's children in God's family. They have a whole new destiny, a whole new inheritance, as he goes on to say, uh, to become Christ-like and a whole new creation. And as Nathan was saying last week, this identity and this destiny holds within it 
new callings, new purposes, uh, to be living anticipations of that new creation, to give people in, in our very lives a glimpse of what's to come, what Christ has begun in his reconciling work on the cross, to be anticipations wherever we happen to be. And so let's, let's go to chapter 2, verse 9, where, where Nathan had us uh, last week. Going back to identity, you are together a chosen people, a royal priesthood representing God in the world, a holy nation, God's special possession. It's who you are. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now let's jump down to verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, there you have that term again, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So again, again the question is, if, if, if we belong to God the Father eternally, if we're citizens, as the Apostle Paul says, of, of his kingdom, what does it also mean that we're in this realm of the United States as citizens or at least residents? How do those fit together? What, what does Peter have to say about this kind of dual citizenship? So let's read on, verse um, 13. Submit yourselves, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but did not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now let's get a little context here. Who's the emperor that Peter's talking about? Well, it's this insane person named Nero. Maybe you've heard of him. At this point, he's in his 20s. He's become the emperor of this vast realm. And the man is um, obsessed with lavish public entertainment. He's decadent. He's paranoid about any sort of competition to his power, such that he arranges for a lot of people to be put to death, including his own stepbrother and even his own mother, threatened that by her in his paranoia. And maybe you know that in 64 AD, when Rome suffered a massive fire, a lot of people, and they were probably right, a lot of people thought that he arranged to start the whole fire. Why? Because he wanted to build a palace in, in a new part of the town. Well, he was being accused, so what did he do? Shifted the blame. And he blamed this weird group called the Christians, who already seemed to be a bit of a threat because they were actually had the guts to say, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Well, so they get blamed for the fire, and it's just an awful period of persecution where many of them are uh, sometimes thrown into arena with wild dogs. Some are burned alive. They're actually uh, set, a, uh, set a fire with, with uh, gas or whatever as living torches to light the, the city. Um, some are crucified, including a man named Peter. 
we're pretty sure that uh, during this uh, period of terror that uh, another Christ follower named Paul, the Apostle Paul, is beheaded at the orders of Nero. So think about that when you hear this astonishing word that seems almost crazy. Submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, literally human creations or human institutions, including the emperor. And then verse 17, honor Nero, the emperor. Now we'll, we'll come back to what that might have meant for Peter, but let me ask you this question. This is God's word to us. Would you agree that in a relative way, it's a lot easier for us to submit to our government than it probably was for, for Peter and his friends to submit to Nero? I mean, we've got it pretty good, in, comparatively speaking, right? Um, and, well, Winston Churchill famously said that representative democracy is the worst form of government in all of history, except for all the rest. That, that was supposed to be slightly funny, I don't know, but, uh, it, but it's true anyway. Um, it's not perfect representative democracy, but it's a good system within which to live. It's a government that's less from rulers imposing their will and more by laws that the people shape through representatives. Again, not perfectly, but there's relatively more justice and more peace. And uh, you, you, I hope, know that this, it's a system of government that has its roots in Christianity. A lot of it goes back to, among other things, to in the um, 1600s, some English Christians who began to arrange their lives by covenants, by agreements, where together they would seek justice under God. And a lot of this was drawn from the Old Testament. One example would be in, uh, in 1 Kings um, well, 2 Kings chapter 11 is where it is, where, where the kings themselves, who have a lot of power, the kings are, are commanded to submit to the covenant. The agreements formed and the promises formed by God and with the people. And uh, God and the people were represented by the prophets and the priests. And the kings were submissive even to them. And, and, and that really planted the seeds for the kind of government that we, we now enjoy. Now, here's a kind of irony looking at our American heritage. On the one hand, our political tradition makes it easier to submit, relatively speaking. And yet, our political tradition makes us less inc- inclined to submit. And I tell you why. We were born out of a rebellion that declared its independence And we're given life liberty for the pursuit of happiness. Now, that's a great gift, a great heritage. But we Americans love our freedom, don't we? And thank God for freedom, but the dark side of that is when it turns into, I get what I want. I'm entitled. I have my rights. That's the absolute. And sometimes it gets us into trouble. This spirit of freedom was anticipated actually in Peter. It's why I think he's, he's, he's especially a good Christ follower in the Bible to, to give us a little peek at ourselves. You think about Peter and his feistiness and his love for forms of freedom. 
when Jesus, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, when Jesus said, after Peter's realized who Jesus was as the Messiah, the King, the Son of the living God, that's when Jesus, for the first time, says, the Son of Man, namely himself, must go to Jerusalem and be killed. It must happen. And what does Peter say? No way! He goes into protest mood. No death in Jerusalem. No death in Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus has to confront him. Well, he still stays in that spirit of freedom where, where uh, when Jesus is actually arrested, what does Peter do? He gets out a sword and he cuts off a guy's ear. He's going to stand up for his religious liberty at this point. And again, Jesus has to say, put away your sword. Well, here's the same man who's saying, submit. Submit to the authorities. It's a term that literally means to place yourself under. Well, what's that mean? Let's look at, at the passage here in First Peter. Uh, four really important qualifiers that, that really shape practically what it means. Uh, number one, and this is, this is the most important thing. You submit to the human authorities for the Lord's sake. You do it for the Lord's sake. Essentially, that submission, which is temporary and qualified and provisional, is part of the total allegiance to the Lord, a submission to the Lord. You put yourself under the Lordship of Christ, who is Lord over everything. You take seriously what Jesus said. All authority has been given to me. Not just the authority over church life or your private spiritual life. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus says. And so here's, this, this, this can help us work through some of the complexity. When we submit to any kind of governing authority, we do so with our focus on Jesus as Lord. And what we're actually submitting to practically is not so much those people who are anything but perfect, and many of them are extraordinarily flawed, we're submitting to God's purpose for that governing. What God intended, is, as Peter will go on to say, to, to restrain evil, to promote good. We're submitting to that. We're seeking that. And we're submitting to God's purposes for us to, to be representing God's kingdom wherever we happen to be. And sometimes, because there is a distinction there between the two realms, it will lead to clashes where, yeah, all in all, we submit, but sometimes we, we submit to government by actually resisting that government. You see what I mean? We're, 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 we're submitting to what God intended. Now, three additional qualifiers that begin to fill this out a little more. Uh, we submit to every human authority for the Lord's sake. How do we do it? By doing good. By doing good. We do it as free people, not just to get what we want, but as God's slaves, Peter says. And we do it with this posture, this mindset, this perspective of respecting. Even The word simply means honoring. We honor everyone. Whether we kind of brand them as enemies or friends, whether they're part of our little group, party, nation, we seek to have respect, at least. We don't have to agree with them, but have respect 
uh, for everyone. Now, let me, let me kind of put this into terms of our gratitude for our nation and our participation in the American process. We face where we are with gratitude, with concern in various ways, but we put our focus on God's kingdom and we see a distinction between the two. And um, that's important. You know, every now and then I, I have, I'm with fellow believers, I hear this myself, where the mindset is, you know what? It's never been worse in our country. It's never been worse. And what we need to do is get back to the way it was when we were a Christian nation. Well, that's an understandable mindset, but here's, here's the truth. While our form of government does have biblical roots, you really can't honestly call it Christian. And in a lot of ways, things have been worse. There's a sort of weird encouragement in that. Things have been worse than they are now. Let me give you a few examples. In the couple decades surrounding the Revolutionary War, and you know, so much good that was going on there, but nevertheless, don't romanticize that picture. Um, most of the founding fathers, some were strong believers, followers of Christ, but, but many of them, actually most of them, were what would you call deists, Thomas Jefferson being a prime example. He didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. He didn't believe Jesus was Lord. He thought Jesus was a good moral example. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, you can see this on display, had the Jeffersonian Bible, where he ripped out all the pages that had any reference to the miraculous, the supernatural, and, and to Jesus as, as, as divine. What remained, actually not that much, but, uh, but basically, you know, ethical principles for good living. Now, he's a great man, but you, you can't call him a born-again believer. You just simply can't, and that was true of many, many of the founding fathers for all their wisdom and all the ways God even used them. Um, it was only 17% of the colonial population that had any formal adherence to any kind of church. And church attendance on a regular basis is estimated to be about 5%, a lot lower than it is now in, in, in America. Uh, 34% of, of births were conceived before the weddings. Now, granted, they didn't have um, birth control and so on. But um, again, don't romanticize things. And then we have this dark side of our American history called slavery, where a massive number of residents were considered property, where even when from the South they were represented in Congress, they were considered three-fourths persons, not full persons. And then, of course, you had the massive number of residents who had called the continent home for thousands of years and who were Sometimes in the name of Christ, we're, we're systematically displaced, if not slaughtered, the Native Americans. Now, does this take away from the good that we have in our nation? No, but I tell you what, when the United States of America has moved closer to liberty and justice for all under God, it's not mainly because of elections and laws from votes, looking back, let's try to recover something in the past, it's been far more from hearts being awakened to the king of all kings and 
looking not back, but looking forward to a whole new creation that's promised, that's getting anticipated, and getting anticipated by people, God's people, living that out, doing good as free people, honoring as many people as possible. And that often led to laws. It led to reforms. Things like resisting and abolishing slavery, fighting racism, reforming labor, uh, bringing women into equal status, and the list could go on and on. Examples of Christ followers doing good, um, not just being nice in a passive conformity, but actively living out the good that God had planted in creation that he's rebuilding through the new creation. Um, affirming purposes of, of, of government that Peter talks about, like, um, like restraining evil and promoting good, uh, trying to minimize what's destructive and, uh, and uh, cultivating uh, what is helpful. Uh, let me just give you a practical example, even as we would consider our votes and interactions with uh, our leaders we need to consider both what restrains evil, but also what promotes good. So, for example, I dare say all of us would call ourselves pro-life. We want to protect the unborn. Well, as much as laws to stop abortion, it seems like we also want to look at policies that um, minimize the number of abortions, partly because they're also policies and laws are promoting what will happen after the birth for the welfare of those children and the mothers and, and uh, families. Um, let me give you an example of, of this where it's not just laws, but it's, it's daily life. It's living out the good where we are as we are as God's people. Uh, we have a, a friend, a good friend, uh, Jill Meyer, actually a member of our church in Littleton. And 25, 30 years ago, Jill, working with the Denver Youth for Christ, started a profound ministry called Teen Moms. And what she's done for 25, 30 years here in Metro Denver, but it's also spread across the country, is, is training mentors to be alongside these teen moms, also teen dads in many, in, in many cases, but mainly the moms, uh, teenagers, and building into their lives... Um, faith and hope and love and, and practical living skills. And I tell you what, I'm very confident that in her ministry over the years, hundreds, maybe thousands of abortions have been prevented. And not just that the baby's lives were spared, but that these young women and men, their lives were built up in faith, hope, and love. And, and, and so there's more of God's manifest goodness and transformation that was happening, not just the law stopping abortion. She was once, um, uh, and, and she's such a gracious, gracious person, um, a go-getter, but she was, um, had, had an encounter with a group of fellow Christ followers who were uh, protesting at an abortion clinic, and she didn't criticize them or judge them, but uh, she explained to them what she was doing and said, you know, what you're doing is may be what God's led you to do, but would any of you like to consider being a mentor for one of these moms and prevent some abortions? 
because a lot of these teen moms were maybe understandably really considering and being pressured to have an abortion. Out of about 30 protesters, not one of them agreed to sign on. She didn't judge them, but it's really kind of sad, isn't it? And then on the positive side, she's had hundreds and hundreds of folks that have, have been trained and are alongside these, these uh, young men and women. And see, this, see, this is just one of many examples uh, in our history and in our community where a submission to the way things are in our government uh, that honors Christ, that does good as free people who honor everyone, this Christ-exalting submission actually ends up being a kind of holy subversion. It slowly but surely begins to change things. It, it displaces a destructive love of power with the power of love. Let me give you one other example. Um, I told you a few weeks ago that, uh, that we as Grace Covenant planted the church I was allowed to pastor for 30 years, Centennial Covenant in Littleton. And 20 years ago, we were expanding our building. Here's a, a picture of the place when it was being expanded. But anyway, we, we were expanding the building. That meant we had to spend a lot of time with the city planning department. And uh, what we ha- didn't realize is that our architect back in 96, 97, had, had put a clause in the agreement with the city that said uh, a parcel, about an acre of the seven acres, um, was designated for an office building and that would be taxable. And so the planning department said that we were not allowed to expand the building, as they discovered this, until we sold off that parcel so they'd have tax revenue. And um, some of the department were were favorable toward us, but uh, one planner in particular, in fact, the head honcho, he... (laughs) I was at a meeting where he said, um, hey, look, look, the city needs tax revenues. And I didn't disagree with that at all. Um, and he said, here's the deal, Pastor. Um, churches don't pay taxes. And to be honest, no offense, I don't, I don't see what good the churches are doing in the community. You know, it feels like to bite your tongue, you know? Yeah. Well, I did just calmed myself down a little bit and prayed. Then I got into a little conversation. I said, well, you think, you think maybe the church's contribution to the city of Littleton is, is not just money, but which, which we do need together, but maybe our contribution is more um, qualitative in benefiting the community? And this was one year after the shootings at Columbine. And, and I said, you know, we're all still grieving what happened in our community. Um, but I don't know if you're aware that every church I know, including ours, invests a tremendous amount of energy and time with our children and with our students. And do you think it's possible that for all the tragedies we might have, like the Columbine shootings, maybe we've prevented a whole bunch of them because of that investment with kids? He kind of shrugged and said, well, maybe so. We did get the approval, and we expanded. Whether or not it was part of that conversation, I don't know. But then, here's the rest of the story with the city of Littleton. Three years later, um, there are about 20, 25 adults in a class where they're exploring what it means to be Christ believers in terms of urban ministry. 
Most of them were already involved in things, kind of like many of you are, things in the community, but especially down in urban Denver. And they really sensed a nudge to look closer to home in Littleton. And what they noticed was there was a rapidly changing neighborhood in North Littleton, a couple miles away from our building, where, where there was a growing population of immigrants, most of them from Mexico, but actually from all over the world, but mostly Mexico. And uh, there's subsidized housing that a lot of us were not aware of for, uh, at that time. And, and so one, one thing we did, probably had about 50 people involved in this, about once a week we took prayer walks. Good thing to do, by the way. Pray with your eyes open, walk the neighborhood, and just pay attention to what God begins to show you. Well, a couple people noticed as we took these prayer walks, asking God, is there anything you would call us to do in this neighborhood? And a couple of them noticed all these children who were playing in this one park every time we were out there. And uh, one feisty lady named Katie said, well, I'm going to start a club. And she started a kids club. They'd meet under a tent during the summers. Long story short, it got incorporated into what's called North Littleton Promise. Got a picture of Katie with, several years ago, but with at least some of the children, uh, mostly uh, children of immigrants. Um, And this is now North Littleton Promise that has the involvement of about 12, 15 churches in the area. And there's a lot of good going on. And it was a few years later, about uh, seven, eight years after this started, that the city of Littleton, the, the city council, gave its annual Martin Luther King Community Benefit Award to Katie, the founder of North Littleton Promise, and her successor, named Maureen. And they cited two points of evidence as to what had happened. And we were aware of this already. They said two things. The crime rate has gone down dramatically in that neighborhood. There's, there's very little gang activity, as there used to, and there had been. Secondly, the graduation rates at Littleton High School, where most of these kids went, the graduation uh, levels have gone way up. And what, what they didn't mention, but we knew, on top of that, or below it, or beneath it, within it, Lots of children and their moms, especially, and some of the dads had come to faith in Jesus. And, and some of those kids, now that it's been going on for 15 years, some of those little children, for all I know, some in the picture there, are now volunteer leaders in North Littleton Promise. One's on the staff. And some have gone on to college or vocational school. And uh, there's not a, a, a boast except to boast in the Lord. And the city that was opposing us was the city now thanking us. We'd say to God's glory. Um, You you see how kind of working with the system, but doing so not just changing laws, but stepping as God's people, doing good as free people, honoring everyone, even the people that were opposing us. You see where God can take that. And I tell you what, I gave an example from the church I served. I'm learning examples from this church and this community. You all have stories where God's using ordinary people to have an impact on a broken world in this community and way beyond. And and, and that's a big part of what it means to be God's people in this world. Exiles and yet fully engaged.
So my question today, again, is, 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 is how might our engagement with our governments, including our voting, how might Christ lead us into focusing first, first on a pledge of allegiance to him? Not at the exclusion of our allegiance to our country, but first and foremost, and in all things, an allegiance to the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Um, what would it mean? Even as you, if you haven't voted yet, as you, as you take that ballot and pray over it, but then as you just get involved as a citizen, what, what would it mean that you, you do it for and with Christ? That you're seeking the good, not just of you and your little group, but of society as a whole and, and even beyond that to other nations. What would it mean that you're honoring everyone, including the people that you don't like very much running for office or in office? Um, as we get into these last three are from First Peter 5 that we'll get into next month where Peter says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he might exalt you in due time. What would it mean that you go about your participation as a citizen humbly? Which is not so much putting yourself down, but exalting God and others. And realizing that he's the only one that's got it all right. I don't. I know for sure that I believe some things that aren't true. I just don't fully know what those are. Except I'm pretty sure that um, I don't have it perfectly right. And I'm pretty sure there are some others I disagree with that just might have it right. What would it mean that I would do this humbly? And then what does it mean that if I have fear, and hey, would you agree there's, there's a fair amount of fear in politics? Oh, my Lord, what's going to happen if they get elected or whatever? Um, well, can you just give that up, give it to God? Be concerned, but don't get anxious. Don't be afraid. And then what would it mean that, as Peter says, resist the devil? Knowing that he's our adversary. He, he's the real enemy. And, and what Paul says, what, what Peter says, what you see it in Jesus, um, the real enemy is not, is not the other party. It's not that group in office. It's, it's not um, some other nation. Oh, they may be a threat, but they're not the enemy. And what would it mean that we resist the liar behind what's wrong with this world? I, th I, think, I think it'd make a difference. Here's a little exercise that you may not like very much, but it, I wonder as you approach voting and other forms of participation, if, if you'd first of all go to God and just kind of hate, let go of your strong convictions, passions, fears, and anger, and just you know, offer it to him, but then make a couple lists. One would be list, list the weaknesses you see in your, say, political party. And this might be hard, but make a list of some strengths you do see in the other party. Doesn't mean you agree with them, but can you humble yourself and at least have respect? It, it, it probably won't change your vote or your posture, but it just might just might be a growth opportunity to be all the more humble, understanding, respectful, and I tell you the main thing, it could pull you into all the clearer, focused allegiance to Christ 
who transcends every party and every nation, even as he's involved in, with his love. I want to give you just a moment as we close now in God's presence and, um, and we, we're going to pray a psalm together before, and then we'll go right in, after the psalm, we'll go right into a closing song, okay? Yeah, you can come up. Even start playing if you'd like, Chris. Um, but this, this print in the yellow, Facing Citizenship with a Focus on the King, I just wonder if you can take a moment and just express whatever you're facing of your citizenship means. So express gratitude for where you are in the United States. Express your concern, even your fears, whatever it is. Face that, express it. But then can you say in some fresh way, but my focus, my faith, my allegiance, Jesus Christ is to you. As the Lord of all lords, as the King of all kings. Just, just take a moment in prayer and, and then we'll pray a psalm and then we'll sing together. If you'd like, would you join me in praying this psalm? I'd invite you to, to pray the print in white after I've prayed the yellow. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my life. Do not put your trust in princes. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. 